It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, on these Thursday mornings, we've been walking through a little series, a little Bible survey, which I've been calling the, the Sweeping Saga. And I think uh, we're almost done. We have a few more sections left, but uh, we've been walking through the Old Testament over these last several weeks and just talking about the fact that here's this king who establishes a kingdom in the garden, and here's a group of people that he creates, and we rebel against him in this kingdom. And as you just begin to see the flow of the king of the kingdom, what you're going to see is this, this king has this overwhelming passion and a desire for redemption. He's longing to bring his people back into this kingdom. And so as you see this progression walk through, uh, we now come to what I'm calling the coming of the king. So last time we were talking about these 400 years of quote-unquote silence, which was anything but silent, but it was these 400 years that was literally setting the stage for the coming of the king. And of course we talked about like Herod, and we talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we talked about Alexander the Great, and how all of this stuff was leading us up to the point where the stage was perfectly set for Jesus Christ. That Jesus came on the scene at the perfect time. And as you start looking at some of these dimensions, it really is amazing to me that when Jesus showed up on the scene, it really was perfect for God himself to show up on the scene. And again, this is a little bit of a review from last time, but there's this idea that that Greek culture, the Hellenism of the world, had so taken over that that the Greek language uh, was the prominent language. And that is so brilliant to me, because if you think about the fact that here is a world who now has one common language. So, of course, in every area you had your normal languages, but because Alexander the Great came in and took over the whole world, everyone knew Greek, because it was the business language of the day. So if you think about how brilliant this is, that, that here's Israel centered in the very place of trade and commerce, and it was a thoroughfare between Africa and Europe and Asia. And, it, and as such, people were coming through Israel all the time. So now you have God himself on the scene, smack dab in the middle of the world, proclaiming truth, and it's really being spread across the entire world in the language of the world. I just think that is brilliant of God. I hear the disciples are being sent out, and as long as they know Greek, they can speak to anybody in the world. How brilliant of God is that? Uh, Jesus showed up on the scene at the very height of crucifixion, which is such an interesting thought that the Persians invented crucifixion, yet the Romans perfected it. It was such a torture device. And yet, I think that is so brilliant of God to show up on the scene when crucifixion was at its height. And the reasoning, uh, and I've said this so many times around here, but you recognize that there's a lot of ways to die, but there's only one way that I can think of that you cannot commit suicide by, which is crucifixion. That if you're going to be crucified, someone has to crucify you. And as I often say, you know, you can get this hand and you can get those feet, but you have a doozy of a time getting this one done. So how are you going to crucify yourself? You can't crucify yourself. And you realize that Jesus showing up on the scene at the height of crucifixion is brilliant. And the reason it is so brilliant is because someone's going to have to crucify. He can't do this to himself. We are going to have to crucify him. So all of this is kind of coming and it's setting the stage at this perfect moment when Jesus shows up on the scene, this coming of the king. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through the birth of Christ, the life and the ministry of Jesus, and then his death and resurrection. So let's just walk through a few of these. When we look at his birth, it's, it's interesting that Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16 
says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Paul's looking at this whole thing of this incarnation, this God becoming man. And he says, without a doubt, great is this mystery. Well, why is this such a great mystery? Well, because we have an invisible God who we cannot see becoming visible whom we can see. And Paul says, do you know what a, what a crazy notion this is? That all throughout Old Testament history, we've never been able to see God. And yeah, he shows up, you know, in like, you know, burning bushes and those kind of things, you know, cloud in the sky, fire by night, that kind of stuff. But we've never been able to actually physically see God himself. And yet he's seen. We, we can see God. He says, wow, great is this mystery, this incarnation thing. The fact that God would condescend and leave all that he had as God to come as a man and limit himself as a man. Paul says, this is a great mystery. It really is a profundity. Uh, Luke chapter 2, as we come into Luke, uh, Luke is a phenomenal writer in, this, in the fact that he's doing this, all this research. He's like a journalist. And he's going back into all the all the all the archives, if you will, and he's doing an investigative report of what is taking place leading up to the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Luke was investigating, if you will, I, you know, he's, he's telling us the story of like Zechariah and Elizabeth and the fact that John the Baptist was miraculously born. And he tells the fact that Gabriel came to Mary and says, Woo, you are highly favored! And you get to carry the Messiah within your womb. But as you come into the birth scene, it's interesting that here's, of course, Joseph and Mary, and they, they travel the 80, 100 miles from Nazareth down to uh, Bethlehem area. And, uh, of course, there's no room in the inn, and so they find this little stable area uh, where the animals are at, and they give birth to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe. And how profound it is to realize that, that the God of the universe, maybe I'll say this way, if you're a king and you're going to be born to a king, you're usually born in a palace. You're going to have the nicest, I mean, you're going to have the nicest birthing options available. Why? Because you're a king. You're the son of a king. And we're talking about the God of the universe. How much greater is Jesus Christ than even just some mere mortal king? And yet, how is Jesus born? He's born in the most lowly, humble of circumstances in the middle of a barn with a whole bunch of animals and straw, and smells, and just, that's, that's not where a king is to be born. And yet that is where the God of the universe chooses to be born. And, and again, that I think alone is brilliant too. Because you realize that the life of Christ is marked by humility. And even in the incarnation, the fact that he was born in a stable is a beautiful picture of what he's longing to do in our life. Because you recognize that he comes as, here I am, I, I, I embrace Jesus do you realize that God comes into this life and it's a stable? It's full of junk. It's full of manure. It's full of just straw and just this kind of stuff. And yet do you realize that though he condescends and is willing to be birthed here in this life known as me, that he's unwilling to leave it as a stable, which is just a beautiful picture. That even in his birth, it's a picture of the fact that what he's longing to do in humanity I want to be born in a mucky place called your life, and yet I'm not going to leave you that way. I want to change your life. So Luke is recording all of this, and he talks about the fact that here's Jesus born in the stable. And these angels show up, 
on the backside of the shepherd's field. So here's, here's Jesus being born in a little, little inn or a little stable in Bethlehem. And right outside of Bethlehem, there's all these shepherds. Now, if you understand the geography of Israel, it's really fascinating that in Jerusalem, about five miles northeast of Bethlehem, you have the center of the world for, for the Jews. And here's five miles south in this little tiny town called Bethlehem. It was a shepherding's town. Uh, Bethlehem sits right on the edge of uh, the wilderness, and it's just a great place for flocks. There's not a lot to eat, but that's why we send the flocks there so they don't eat our food, because <laughs> we, we need to eat too. So we send the flocks out there, and Bethlehem, at the time of Jesus, it's really fascinating that Bethlehem was basically the place of the priestly shepherds. It was the place where the, 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 the shepherds would be caretaking for the little sheep that would be later used for the sacrifices at the temple. And I think that is brilliant. Because think about this. Here's Jesus, the Lamb of God, being born in Bethlehem, the place of the shepherds. Not only is Jesus the great high shepherd, he's the lamb. He's the perfect sacrifice. So in Luke chapter 2, Luke records, now they're in the same country. Shepherds were living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now it's interesting in this culture that the shepherding duties were always given to the youngest in the family. So there is a good likelihood that when the angels show up and talk to the shepherds, they're not talking to guys who are in their 50s. Likely, they're teenagers. They're young kids, probably 12 you know, to 17 years old or so. And they're, they're caretaking all the sheep. So uh, If you go back, to, you, know, and you have David. You know, here's David as a young man, 12, 13, 14 years old, taking care of the sheep. It's that kind of an idea. So there's good indication then that when the angels show up and say, wow, why don't you go and worship the king? They're not talking to old guys. They're talking to young bucks, which is kind of a neat thought. Now, it says that when the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I will bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a feeding trough, a manger. Why is it that the angel said that this will be a sign to you? Have you ever wondered that? This is so bizarre to me. Here's the angels looking at the shepherds saying, hey, this is going to be a sign. Uh, you're going to find a baby in a feeding trough. So when they get to the little stable and they see a baby in a feeding trough, they're going to go, oh, this is a sign. Why is that a sign? Do you realize it's all pointing to the sacrificial system? Uh, here are these priestly shepherds. And at the high sacrifices of the year, they would take their little lamb and they would take it into the barn and put it in a feeding trough, a manger. And they would literally take the little lamb and they would wrap it with swaddling clothes so that they can take it the five miles up to Jerusalem. And the reason they would wrap the little lamb in swaddling clothes is so that the lamb would be literally tucked in and could not move so that the little lamb could not injure itself during the five-mile journey. Because you recognize if the lamb injured itself, it would not be a perfect sacrifice. So think about this. The priestly shepherds have this in the back of their mind. They do this all year long. They, they wrap a little lamb, a baby lamb, in swaddling clothes to take it up to Jerusalem for a sacrifice. And the angels show up and say, you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in the same place that you wrap little lambs. And that's going to be a sign. Well, what's the sign? That's the perfect sacrifice. Do you realize that when the shepherds came in to look at baby Jesus, 
they weren't just looking at a baby. In their minds, they're thinking, this is really odd. Because everything that's centering around this whole thing is what we do for a Passover lamb. This is the same thing we do for a little sacrifice. This is the same thing we do for our means of salvation. Yeah, exactly. Because that is who Jesus is. Isn't this amazing? That is so profound to me. Love that. Uh, We recognize that Jesus grows up, obviously. He's caretaken by his stepdad, uh, Joseph, his mom, Mary. And, of course, Joseph is a carpenter, which we've talked about before. is not necessarily a woodworker. It's more of a stonemason. It's an architect because the the Jews don't have a lot of wood out in Israel. They they build stuff with stone. And so Jesus was a stonemason, probably big muscles. And he's going around and he's building homes and that kind of stuff. Uh, The only account we have of his childhood, again, shows up in the book of Luke, and it's here he is, 12 years old, and they go down for the high festival, and they're down at the the, the festival, and of course, Jesus goes down to the temple, and Joseph and Mary leave him there, (laughs) which I always thought was hilarious. Like, why would you leave God? You know, if you knew he was God, why would you, you just make sure, I would make sure he was with me all the time. But Joseph and Mary leave, and in that culture, it doesn't make sense, because you'd always travel in big groups, there's probably 70, 100 people traveling, and they're just probably assuming that Jesus is with the cousins, and they get to stop for the night, and they start looking for Jesus because it's dinner time. They're going to roast their hot dogs, and there's no Jesus. And so what do you do? Uh, We just lost God. So they run back to Jerusalem. They search for another day. So it's probably been about three days, and they find Jesus at the temple, and he's just sitting there and talking and asking questions with the rabbis and teaching. And, of course, Mary runs up and says, Hey, you're driving us crazy. You scared me to death. What were you doing? And Jesus says, Wait. You recognize I was to be about my father's business. Of course I would be here. And it says that Mary marveled at these things. And during these time of, of growing years, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. That Jesus was growing. He's maturing. But even at 12 years old, he recognizes that there's, there's this calling on his life. He recognizes who he is, at least at 12. Because he, he needed to be about his father's business. But it's interesting, as you come into his actual life and ministry, which is not, not his life, I guess, but when you actually come into his ministry years, Luke tells us in Luke 3.23 that Jesus began his ministry at about 30 years of age. So here's Jesus. He's 30 years old. Now, why would that be significant? Well, that is significant because in that culture, 30 years old was the time frame or the mark of, that you're actually a mature adult, that, that you are a man. Now, granted, you are a man at 14. We, we get that. At 12, 13, 14 years old, right, the, there's this whole festival for a young man, and, and they, oh, hey, we see you as a man. But it's the maturity of years that a rabbi said, hey, 30 years old is the maturity of years for a man. And so here is Jesus, now 30 years old. He comes on the stage of time. Now, as you look at, look at the ministry of Jesus, it's interesting that you can mark the ministry of Jesus by three key events, or three key sections, if you will. One, you have his baptism, which I'm calling his personal Pentecost. Uh, here's Jesus, he comes down to the Jordan, and his cousin John the Baptist is there, and uh, John the Baptist has been preaching and yelling and, and all this kind of stuff. He's decked out in camel's hair, and he's eating locusts and wild honey, which has to be not that tasty, and it has to be itchy. <laughs> I mean, camel's hair, doesn't that just sound, ugh. Anyway, he's in camel's hair. Uh, he has a Nazarite vow, which means he's never cut his hair. He probably looks like a crazy man. I mean, long, stringy hair. He's yelling at everybody, right? Repent, repent, repent. 
And all these people would be gathering down and coming down to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, Jesus shows up one day. And, of course, John says, oh, there he is, the one I've been proclaiming this whole time. There he is. Hey, he's coming. And Jesus steps down in the water and says, John, I need to be baptized. And John says, Jesus, come on. If someone's going to be baptized, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I need to be baptized. Now, this is a little awkward, but do you know what John's baptism was all about? Repentance. It's very clear in Scripture that it's, John says, hey, I, the baptism that I baptize with is a baptism of repentance, which means everyone who was getting baptized by John had a baptism of repentance. And here's Jesus. He gets into the water, and he says, I need to be baptized. Isn't this a little odd? Well, Jesus, what do you have to repent of? Do you realize that Jesus repented? No, he never sinned. We understand that. He is sinless. So how did he repent? Well, just by the fact that he was baptized by John, it was a baptism of repentance. So what on earth was Jesus repenting of? Now, this all makes sense if you understand the biblical idea of repentance. Repentance is not necessarily, it does involve sin, usually. But it's not a sin thing. Repentance is giving up a former thought to embrace a brand new thought. It is giving up some old system to embrace a new system. It's giving up an old mindset to embrace a brand new mindset. Now, typically that's sin, right? So I have sin in my life. I give up my sin. I reject that thinking. Hey, I turn from that way, and I embrace a whole new reality of living called Jesus. Now, that's how we typically understand repentance. But you realize that repentance is not being sorry for sin. Judas was sorry for his sin, yet he never repented. So repentance and being sorry, are, they are distinct. And you can repent and never be sorry for your sins. Sorry, let me rephrase that. You can be sorry for your sins and never repent. That sounds better. But you realize that you can repent and it doesn't even have to be about sin. For example, uh, you, you spend a lot of time in the church. You realize at some point what was so grand about Jesus and what is so phenomenal about this life and all the disciplines of the soul, eventually that... For it works its way down to an old thought. That, why am I doing this? Well, I'm just doing it because I have to do it. I'm a Christian and we should do it. And da, 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 da. Do you realize you should repent of that? It's not that it's bad, but it shouldn't be legalism. It shouldn't be duty. It shouldn't be a have to. I should give up that thought and embrace a brand new thought, which is what? Jesus. And get wrapped up in Jesus. And the moment that that thought finally becomes, its, you know, finds its way down back here, well, good, repent of that and embrace Jesus afresh. That we should live lives of repentance and not just of sin. Yes, if there's sin in our life, repent of it. And hey, give that up and embrace the reality of Jesus. But even the good stuff, do you realize at some point it becomes kind of, it just becomes mundane at some level. It becomes, well, it's just our system. It becomes just our duty. It becomes, well, this is just what we do because this is what we've always done. Do you realize you should, hey, set that aside, embrace the new reality, which is Jesus. I don't know if that makes sense. But hey, Jesus should be our, our, our new thought every single day. So what was Jesus repenting of? Well, it wasn't of sin, obviously, because he never sinned. He was a perfect sacrifice. He did not sin. So then what did he repent of? It wasn't of sin, but he was giving up his former way of living. Hey, he was a carpenter for 30 years. He's always taking care of mom. At some point, Joseph apparently has died, and he's, he's caretaked as the oldest son 
for mom and, and all of his siblings. And we know he has several brothers and at least a couple of sisters. So here he is, the oldest, oldest brother, and he's caretaking all this stuff. And so what does he repent of? He sets that all aside, looks at one of the brothers and says, hey, take care of mom. Hey, I, I'm, I'm packing this thing up. I'm, I'm embracing a whole new reality, which is the ministry and the calling that God has upon my life, which is why I came in the first place. And so he was baptized, and he gave up a former thought, which is how he lived up to this point. It wasn't bad. He's just given it up, and he's embracing a whole new reality, which is the ministry of the Messiah. But that is a key turning point in the life of Jesus. And it's interesting that the moment that Jesus was baptized, John records that, hey, I saw this dove, this, the, the Holy Spirit coming as a dove and alighting upon him. And it's like, here's a man, yes, he is God, but he is a man who is now filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And what was Jesus doing? Only what the Father was doing. Hey, what did he say? Only what the Father was saying. And he was living out the reality of what a Christian is, which is what? Full of the Holy Spirit, contained and restrained to only doing what God is doing in your life. So what did, how did he do what he did? He is God, but he didn't do what he did because he was God. He did what he did because he's a man filled with God. Oh, that's a phenomenal thought. Because that means oh, I can be filled with God. Now, I'm not God. I, we, under, we definitely understand that. But you realize that as a, as a human, I am called to be a man filled with the living God, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus lived this way. Yes, he was God, but he came as a man and limited himself as a man. And at his baptism, it was his personal Pentecost. God himself took over in the full reality of whatever that meant in his life. And now he's going off and doing ministry in field, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the baptism was his personal Pentecost. Well, immediately, the moment that he's baptized, it says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now, if you ever go up into the, our mountains here, we think of wilderness, there's pine trees and, you know, grizzly bears and, you know, that kind of stuff. That's not this kind of wilderness. Uh, this wilderness is desert. Uh, this wilderness, there's no trees. There, this wilderness, there's no shrubbery. There's no water. It's just barren. It's just rocks. It's just desert. And so the, the Spirit leads Jesus into the, in the middle of the desert. It is miserable in the desert. For 40 solid days, he's being tempted and tested. It's his proving season. And, of course, it all comes to a climax where the, where the, where the, where the devil comes and, and three big temptations tries to get Jesus to, to sin. And, of course, he becomes victorious, and there's a whole study in that which we don't have time for. But it's his proving season. And then immediately from that, he starts calling the disciples, moving into ministry, and it's a season of proclamation, declaring the things of the kingdom and why he has come. So here's what Jesus says about why he came. This is, this is all his, this, this was a summary of his ministry, if you will. Matthew 18, 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Mark 1, 38. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose... I have come forth. Luke 4, 18 through 19 says, uh, oh, this is a Jesus coming into Nazareth, his hometown, and he's quoting Isaiah 49. But he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Why did Jesus come for that? Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life a ransom for many. As we talked on Tuesday's Ephesians study, he is our ransom. He is the purchase price for our freedom and our salvation. Uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 2 is talking about the incarnation, and he says this, that, that God emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself and, be- and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus come? For salvation. Why did Jesus come? He came as a ransom. Why did Jesus come? To heal the brokenhearted. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve. Which is crazy. Because he is the God of the universe. Hey, we should be serving him. We should be just saying, hey, hey, how can we, how can we minister? How can we pour our life out for you? Hey, hey, what do you need? Because he is God. And you realize that every God in every pagan society all throughout history was created to, well, I'm the most important and I created humanity to serve me. You look at the Roman gods, you look at the Greek gods, you look at the Egyptian gods, and yeah, we understand they're all false gods. But the whole mentality of the gods of the old was this idea that I was created to serve the gods. And what did Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, the God of gods, what does God say? Oh, I came to serve. Do you know how backwards that is? And yes, we should serve him. But how amazing is it that our God, whom we love, did not come just to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Oh, it's amazing. So as you look at the ministry of Jesus then, his ministry was defined by parables and teaching. He gave all these great discourses saying, hey, I know you've heard this before, but let me explain what it means. Hey, this is what it means to live out the life that I'm calling you to live. This is what it means to be a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. Hey, let me describe this. And of course, he gave a lot of these in parables. And parables are just fun, cute stories, typically with flannel board. At least that's what I was always told, right? But, but, but parables, is just, it's a story. It makes sense in the culture of the day. And it's so, that, so it's easily re- uh, remembered. And it's so that you can take a complex topic and make it simple. And Jesus constantly taught in parables. He told stories. He was a great master storyteller. His ministry was defined by miracles, wonders, and signs. That over and over and over again, he would come into a place, and as almost as proof of the ministry that he had, God was doing all these incredible, just miracles, wonders, and signs. He would be doing all these healings. He would do all these, hey, he would be casting out demons. He'd be healing up the brokenhearted. He'd be mending not the not just the physical aspect of life. He was healing the emotional, the, the mental, the spiritual. He's a healer. And his ministry was defined by the cross. Now, we realize that the cross was a moment in the life of Jesus. It was one day in the life of Jesus. But do you recognize that Jesus lived out the cross every day of his life? That his whole life, his whole ministry was, hey, I'm not going to think about myself. I'm only going to pour my life out for you. And my, my life is going to be marked by bleeding and suffering and dying. Do you realize that that was the whole life and ministry of Jesus? I cannot find a single place in Scripture where Jesus thought about himself. You could say, well, Gethsemane. But even in that, he wasn't concerned about himself as much as he was concerned about you. So it's interesting that the life of Jesus was marked by a cross, that he just lived at the cross. In fact, when he got on the cross, his disciples said, whoop, there he goes again. Now that makes sense. Why? Because he just constantly lived that way. Why? Everywhere he went, he was rolling up his sleeves saying, oh, how can I serve? How can I meet your needs? Hey, how can I pour my life up for you? How, how can I wash your feet? Hey, just how can I serve you? That was the life of Jesus. 
By the way, that's what he's calling us to, too. But Jesus' whole life and ministry can be summarized by the cross. Constantly outward-focused, pouring his life out for other people. Now, as you come into the final week of Jesus, it's interesting that there are several key events that are really important for the final week of Jesus. Obviously, the, the beginning of this final week is the triumphal entry. And Luke records this interesting statement by Jesus, which I just think this is neat. But in Luke chapter 19, Luke says, Now, when Jesus drew near, he saw the city, Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What on earth is he talking about? It's interesting. Here's Jesus. He comes in this big celebratory celebration. He's coming down the Mount of Olives. He's riding a donkey. And, of course, everyone's screaming and celebrating, all this kind of stuff, and waving palm leaves. But as he looks across the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, as he's staring at Jerusalem, he begins to weep. And he's weeping. Why? Because they're not ready. And you could say, well, how would they have known they were going to be ready? Like, how, how would they have even known? Well, it's interesting. When you go back into Daniel chapter 9, Daniel gives this prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And when you start calculating out the, the prophecy itself, and you calculate it based on the Jewish calendar, do you know what day Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey? He came in on the very day, like literally the very, very day that Daniel prophesied about. So when you calculate Daniel's prophecy from the time that Daniel gave it to the time that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, Jesus showed up on the very day. So no wonder Jesus looks at Jerusalem and says, hello, why aren't you ready? Hey, you should have known this. Hey, you could have been prepared. Here's another question. Why was he riding a donkey? Did you know that in this culture, to come into a city riding on a donkey was a symbol of peace? That as a, as a conqueror, if you came in riding on a stallion, it meant that, hey, you are the conqueror and you're taking over the place. But if you're a conqueror and you come riding on a donkey, it was a sign to the place that you were coming into that I'm willing to give you peace. Isn't it amazing that here's Jesus, he comes into Jerusalem offering peace, offering life, offering salvation. Several days go by, and Jesus, you know, cleans the temple and has all these great discourses. But here he is a few days prior to his death, and he gathers his disciples in the upper room, and they have what we call the Last Supper. Several key things happen. Of course, there's the whole communion, or at least what we call communion. But here's Jesus. He sets the, the wine and the bread before the disciples, and it's, it's a covenant. It's a pledge. In fact, in this culture, the, uh, for a man to set a glass of wine before someone, it's an invitation to a wedding. It's a, it's a bridal proposal, if you will. So here's Jesus, in essence, setting a glass of wine before the bride. It's the church. It's the beginning of the church. And he's offering relationship. He's offering, hey, I, can I be your groom? And it's amazing that the disciples drink. Now, the wedding hasn't happened yet, because Revelation says that there is coming the wedding of the Lamb. But you realize he proposed. When did he propose? In the Last Supper. It was at this scene that right after dinner, he 
he took off his outer garment, he wrapped his towel around him, and he began to wash, his, wash the disciples' feet. That he was pouring his life out and says, hey, just as I am washing your feet, so too you are to wash the feet of those around you. And then he gives this phenomenal upper room discourse in John 14 through 17 when he talks about this whole idea of abiding and, and what does it mean to be filled with the very spirit that fills me, says Jesus. That I'm going to really send you the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And that promise of the Father is actually going to be greater than what you have with physical Jesus. So, and then he prays the high priestly prayer in John 17. At this point, Judas, who is uh, possessed by Satan, goes off to betray him. And at this point, Jesus takes the disciples and they go down, go across the Kidron Valley. They go over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, of course, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and take, goes a kind of a stone throw away. And he begins to pray. And, of course, there's such an intensity. Uh, he was sweating drops like blood. Uh, so there's this time of prayer. At this point, Judas and this detachment of military people come and come for the betrayal. And Jesus, or, uh, Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, right, as a, as a sign of the betrayal. And what's interesting is Jesus allowed himself to be taken. All the way up to this point, people try to grab Jesus. Remember the scene in Nazareth? Uh, he kind of ticks the, his old friends off at, at Nazareth, and they rise up, and they're going to take him and throw him off the cliff. But it says that passing between them, he left. And you're like, what? They're trying to kill you. And somehow Jesus just kind of walks, walks away. So all this time, no one could get a hold of Jesus. Do you realize that Jesus was not taken, Jesus allowed himself to be, I'll say it this way, Jesus wasn't forced to go to the cross. Jesus allowed himself to go to the cross. And it's an amazing thought that when you look at John 18, uh, I, I never saw this the, until I was over in the Garden of Gethsemane, so a few years ago when I was in Israel, I was in the garden and I was reading this passage and I looked up and you can see Jerusalem, it's like poof, right there. And I never, I never saw this passage, but listen to this. I think it's interesting how John writes this. <clears throat> he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And what stood out to me is the fact that here is Jesus in the garden, and you, you can see the entire ridge of Jerusalem. So the fact that here is Judas coming at night with lanterns, torches, and weapons, you realize it's going to be bright and it's going to be noisy. And G Jesus is sitting there watching them come down the hill of Jerusalem, go across the brook Kidron, and come into the garden. That he was waiting for the betrayal. That he could have escaped if he wanted to. That he allowed this thing to take place. And it's not by accident that John mentions the fact that there was lanterns and torches and weapons. Why? Because it literally symbolizes or showcases that Jesus had to have been waiting. He would have seen the thing coming. And he just, he waited for it to take place. Of course, Jesus is taken and he has a series of six trials. And we don't have time to get into this. But every single trial that Jesus goes through, each of these six, every one of these is illegal. When you look at the Roman law, when you look at the Jewish law, what they were doing with Jesus in every case was illegal. But he had three Jewish trials, one before Annas, one before Caiaphas, and then before the Sanhedrin. Then there were three Roman trials where he goes to Herod, then Pilate sends him, sorry. Three, uh, so the three Roman trials, he goes to Pilate, then Pilate sends him to Herod, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate. 
But every single one of these is illegal. And you can say that if you want to. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but here's Pilate. He kind of washes his hands of the whole thing and sends him off to be beaten and crucified. But do you realize that everything that's taking place in the death of Jesus is a perfect, perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament? For example, and we, we go through all these all the time, but Psalm 22, Jesus is on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first line of Psalm 22. And so when you read Psalm 22, what do you see? It perfectly describes the cross. I mean, it perfectly describes, if someone was just thinking Psalm 22, everyone looking on the scene would go, whoa, 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 we're living in the middle of Psalm 22. My hands and my sides have been pierced. They're gambling for my clothing. I mean, all this stuff is, is taking place in Psalm 22. And there is a scene that lived out right in front of them. That he's a perfect fulfillment of the Passover lamb. That you realize that at the moment Jesus gave up his spirit, the moment Jesus said, <gasps> and, he, and, he, and he dies, he says, it is finished. Do you know what was taking place down at the temple? The high priest down at the temple at that very moment, because it says it was at, I think it was the ninth hour, at three in the afternoon, at that exact moment that Jesus gave up his spirit, the high priest was slitting the throat of the, the Passover lamb for all of Israel. And so the moment the Passover lamb died for Israel, the Passover lamb was dying for the world. So the death of Jesus is a perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament. And of course, he is the lamb. John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus, and even John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter says that knowing you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He is the lamb that was sacrificed on our behalf. And of course, we had this beautiful resurrection scene three days later. So in Matthew 28, I'll just read this. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel, the Lord, descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Do you realize that our God is alive? Here's a couple of just quick thoughts. Unlike every other religion, our God lives. He has triumphed over sin, death, and hell. And because of his death and resurrection, we have forgiveness, redemption, salvation, and life. And it is the same God who is all that we need for life and for godliness. Do you realize how phenomenal is the fact that God himself gave himself? That he didn't send a substitute. He gave us himself. We who do not deserve it. We who deserve an eternity of punishment. God gave himself on our behalf. That God came, born in a lowly stable. Why? So that he could come and literally bring salvation to the nations. That we might have life in the midst of his death. But he did not stay in the grave. He is alive. Which is phenomenal. In fact, he wants to get inside of you. He wants to come and live his life in and through you. Such an amazing thought.
that he's willing to be born in a stable known as me and yet bring forth holiness and righteousness and purity and triumph and truth and freedom and peace. Well, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is what he is wanting to produce in and through our life. That is phenomenal. Let us celebrate that fact today afresh. I know that we know he lives, and I know we sing the songs all the time, but I want us to behold afresh that God sent himself, that the king has come, and our king lives. What a phenomenal reality. Let's just pray. Lord, we love you. Oh, what an amazing thought, Jesus, to think that you didn't just send some replica. You didn't just send some substitute. You came yourself. And God became man. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the fact that I don't deserve anything, and yet you came to rescue me, that you have brought forth freedom, forgiveness, redemption, salvation, yes, even life, and life abundant. Lord, may we just behold you afresh today. May we just bask in your presence. May we just realize that you are alive, and that should affect and change every single thing that goes on in my day. Lord, what a reality. Lord, we just want to celebrate you. Oh, we love you. Just give you the praise and the glory that is rightly due your name. Just praise in your precious and powerful name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.